With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Military snipers were trained sharpshooters assigned to kill a man with one perfect shot. These highly disciplined marksmen often stalked a target for days, waiting for just the right moment to squeeze the trigger. Lurking in the shadows alone, the deadly stealth of the sniper made him the most feared man on the battlefield. As a young hunter, Chuck Mowinney grew up with a gun in his hand. In October 1967, Mowinney was just 19 years old when he made his first kill as a scout sniper in Vietnam. I was born and raised in uh, a small town southeast Oregon called Lakeview. Uh, raised on a small ranch. My dad had about a 30-acre ranch. And I spent a lot of time. I started shooting at the age of about six years old with my father. Spent a lot of time hunting, a lot of time up in the mountains. Actually, when I joined the Marine Corps, after high school, I joined on the delay program, and I joined immediately on graduation, but I, I delayed till October 18th to go in because I didn't want to miss deer season that year. So we did a lot of hunting, you know, we were pretty serious about that. Now, had I known what kind of a hunting trip I was going on, I might not have delayed for the three months. But Chuck Moeny knew that he was going to Vietnam as soon as he joined the Army. Boot camp for me was, uh, I was pretty much conditioned for what was going to be in boot camp. I pretty much had an idea what was going to happen. I had friends that had gone in before me that explained what was happening. And it was all I expected it to be. It was a good conditioning program. It was good training. They were also working hard on the Vietnam conflict that was going on. So there was a lot of that added into our basic training. What did they do? Uh, in what way related to Vietnam? I mean, they just just a lot of discussion about it, or what? Yeah, and and they would explain some of the training, some of the techniques, the 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 reason for the physical conditioning, the the reason that we were doing some of the exercises we were doing. And so when we got to Vietnam, we would be conditioned and be able to maintain and and hold our own. Um, now, what about rifle training? Uh, I know in the Marine Corps. Expert marksmanship's an important legacy. Talk about that. Okay, the, the rifle training in the Marine Corps was we have, after I think it was the sixth week of boot camp, we go up to Camp Pendleton, up to the to the rifle range, spend a couple of weeks up there and qualified. Then we qualified with the M14. Qualified with the M14, and and I ended up qualifying as an expert with the, with the M14. After boot camp, after uh, basic training, they give the people that qualified as expert an opportunity to go to the scout sniper school, which had just started, and I probably went through the fourth or fifth school that they'd started at, uh, at Camp Orno. Then we had about a 50% washout in scout sniper school, but scout sniper school was condensed down to about three and a half weeks at that time. So 
it was a very oh tedious school. We ran from daylight till dark and then into the night and sometimes the days would go by with an hour or two of sleep. But the the people who were teaching the school were Vietnam vets. So the people come back knew what we were going to be facing. So they ran it as realistic as they could. We did everything, not from just the shooting the rifle to, to land navigation. We went to all booby trap courses. So night navigation. They worked us really hard in, in the short time they had, and the training was outstanding. It was very good. Then again, we had to qualify with the rifle, plus pass the tests, qualify with the rifle to get the MOS as a scout sniper. Talk about marksmanship. Talk about what you learned as a kid, what you learned in boot camp on the qualification range, and then what sniper school taught you. Uh, as though I know nothing about it. What, you know, what, what, what are the fundamentals of good marksmanship, and, and what did you really find that you used? Well, like I say, my father, when you're talking about, when you're talking about fundamentals of, of rifle training and, and shooting, my father was an ex-Marine, so nothing had changed over the years as far as the fundamentals and the teaching, the eight steps to, to shooting. Nothing had changed in the, in, the, in the Marine Corps that much that I pretty much had already learned to fire a rifle the way the Marine Corps had taught my father. When, when I, uh, I got to boot camp, I think the snapping in, tying the slings on, and sitting there for hours and hours and hours getting into the position to stretch the muscles was a little bit more tedious than, than I was used to, but it was all excellent because after, you know, a week of, of, of staying in positions for an hour, two hours at a time, those muscles stretched so you were comfortable when you were shooting, and it made a big difference. Well, did you say eight steps to marksmanship? Right. Can you tell me about it? Uh, well, as far as, as the steps to, to shooting, the first thing that, that a person wants is, is correct body alignment. Get down and, and, and get in, in the right position for the rifle for your, your body to be lined up with the, with the weapon. When, when you're aiming a, a rifle, you don't move the, the rifle to the target. You move the body until it's natural point aim on the target. And then it's just the, the normal steps you go through in shooting. It's make sure you have a proper, proper eye, eye relief. You focus on the crosshairs, control your breathing, you squeeze on the trigger, uh, all the way through to your follow through at the, at the end. And it's, it's not uh, rocket scientist, that's just the way everybody was taught in the Marine Corps. Is there one part of it? Is there the body alignment? Is there the, the trigger squeeze instead of pull, the letting half the breath out or whatever that you think is the most critical part? It, it all has to go together because if you leave one step out, if you leave one step out, that's going to throw something else, else off. So everything has to be put in order and put together. Once in country, Moeni was disappointed when he was not assigned to the job he had trained for. When I got to Vietnam, I was trained as a sniper, so I knew, you know, that was what I was going to end up being. Unfortunately, I got there after the Tet Offensive in 68, when I got there, Lima Company, Lima 3-5, 1st Battalion, uh, or 1st Division, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, had been in Way City, and there probably was 65 people in the company. And when I got there, they assigned me as a rifleman to Lima 3-5. I told them I was a scout sniper, and they said, we don't need scout snipers right now, we're, we're looking for infantry. So I was assigned, and I actually spent three months 
which was probably some of the best training I got in Vietnam, but I spent three months as a rifleman with, with Lima 3.5. In that time, I learned what, how to move in the, in the country over there. I learned what gear to take. From Lima 3.5, I ended up being a machine gunner. We got, I had an M16 I had a lot of problems with. It ended up in an ambush one night. The M16 misfired on me, jammed up. Machine gunner ahead of me had got wounded. His A-gunner got on the gun, so I crawled up and was helping the A-gunner. The A-gunner got wounded. I ended up on the M60 that night, and I stayed on the M60 that night. I was fortunate enough not to get, not to get shot. Well, the next morning when I went to give the machine gun back, you just don't give an M60 back. You know, once, once you've got it, once you used it, that's your weapon. For about two weeks, Lima 3-5, that's about the time we'd moved down to Anwa, I was a machine gunner. And that was probably the most dangerous job I ever had in Vietnam because I don't care what happens, what goes on. When there's a firefight, the first thing's hollered out is guns up. They want the firepower up there. And in the short time I was a machine gunner, I literally had a, a grenade shot on my cartridge belt. I had the, the stock shot up on the gun while I was shooting it. I lost two or three partners. And I kind of decided then that if I was going to stay a machine gunner and I had another 10 months left of Vietnam, probably my longevity was, was being shortened up quite a bit. So from that point on, that point on, I kind of faked a toothache. You know, I mean, you can do that stuff in the Marine Corps, but I had to be really convincing. And finally, when they sent me into the dentist, into the rear of the 5th Marines, I knew they had a scout sniper platoon in there, and I knew they had snipers rotating. So I went back into the rear, and for three days, I begged and begged and begged. I had the MOS, I had the training, I begged, and they finally gave me the job as a, as a scout sniper. Moeni soon learned that what he was taught in sniper school did not prepare him for the action in Vietnam. As far as scout sniper school, teaching stalking, field craft, land nav, I had a, a tiny bit of, of basics from basic training, but they, they went and they took it a couple steps further in sniper school, taught us natural camouflage. Now you remember in Vietnam it was so hot over there and the humidity was so high, ghillie suits, Things like that were pretty much out of the question. You're already packing 140 pounds of gear. So too hot for ghillie suits. So they taught us how to use natural vegetation for camouflage. They taught us how to move through the area without setting off booby traps, which was one of the key things. You stayed off trails, especially if you were traveling at night, because Charlie didn't want to spend all the time booby trapping all the ground over there. Normally booby trap trails because that's what Americans walked on. So we learned early, as soon as we was over there, if you stayed off the trails, the chances of hitting booby traps were pretty slim. At night, it's hard to detect a booby trap because you don't have a light, you don't have anything with you, you're trying to move quiet. So we, we learned by staying in the thick vegetation was pretty much out of the, out of the area that they booby trapped. How did you use the natural vegetation? Did you have some sort of webbing on your uniform or your, your clothing that you, you, know, you broke it off and stuck it in there? Tell me specifically about that. Okay, on natural camouflage, and, and it varied by sniper teams and how they used it. I found out we had uh, inner tube tires that we'd cut into strips. We used for our weapons, we used for our arms, for our legs, onto our packs. We also used uh, string, parachute cord, whatever we could use to tie it on. Vegetation is, all it is is anything to break up your outline. And you want to try to match the color of the area that you're in. The big key is when you get to your final firing position, you do not want to use up the vegetation around the area that you're going to. 
because that makes it fairly obvious somebody has, has done something in in that around that position. So what we try to do as we was getting close to the final position, what we was going in, we start picking our vegetation to take in with us. I didn't stay out for days and days, so that wasn't a problem as far as things welting. Usually we'd set up before daylight, and by evening the next, that evening, we'd be starting back out of the area again. Did you use camo paint at all? Yes, we use camo paint. We use camo paint. We also use some of the leaves over there that were green that you could actually rub onto your skin and it would give a green color. And the main thing was just to break up the outline. When, when, you're, uh, when you moved through the jungle over there, did you just assume you were always under observation? I, I'm kind of curious how you can actually get to a position and you know, to take out some people without them getting you first. Okay, most of our movement went at night when it was just a, a two-man team. Most of our movement was at night. The trick is, is you don't let the villagers see you because you don't know who's friendly and who's not friendly. So you don't let the villagers see you. You stay in the heavy brush when you're moving. You stay off the trails, stay out of the rice paddies. And normally I would try to find, before I went out an area, I would kind of pick my routes to and from. I'd find an area that, that I thought was going to be advantageous to us. And then I would look and see what kind of vegetation was going to be to the area I wanted to sit up in. I'd kind of pick my routes from previous patrols when we were out, and then I would go in, and, and that's how we'd work our way into it. If you were, in times I came back in because I did move sometimes during the daytime, and at times I was picked up by village people, somebody would see me, and I, w I would abort the mission because I didn't know if, if they were gonna get word back to VC or if the people themselves were VC. So you're in the thick vegetation. This may sound like a silly question, but what about creatures over there? Is that a big deal? They had lots of creatures over there. They had lots of bugs, lots of snakes, lots of things, and everything grows big over there. I don't really know for sure, but they said there was like over 100 type of snakes in that area that we were in, and most of them were poisonous. Now, I don't know, I, I, I don't know of anybody that was bit by a snake that wasn't playing with a snake. Normally, most wildlife, if you leave it alone, it'll leave you alone. If you want to pick on it and play with it, then it wants to play back. So we didn't play with the stuff. I did sit out one night, and I had a snake that had to have been 15 foot long crawl across my legs. And my partner was sitting next to me, and I whispered to him, I said, don't move, I've got a big snake crossing me. Well, I don't know in, in reality time how long it was, but it seemed like an hour for me before this thing finally crossed my legs. It just kept crossing and crossing and crossing. And I don't know if it was a heavy snake. I don't know what kind of snake it was. I'm guessing it was a big cobra. But it's kind of an eerie feeling when you're sitting there. You can't move. You can't make noise. And you're sitting there, and you've got these creatures crawling across you. You used to have rats over there that a small child could saddle and ride. You know, I mean, there were some big things over there that we played with. Their bugs grow tremendous size. I mean, there, there was cockroaches over there that that you could put one on each foot and, and, and use my roller boards, you know. They're, they're, they're just, things grow big in that area. But if, what I'm trying to say is, is most everything, if you leave it natural, you don't mess with things, if something wants to crawl on you, let it crawl on you, let it leave, and it's not gonna bother you. It's when you, when you put something in, in a position that's trying to defend itself, or it thinks it's threatened, that's normally when, when you have a problem. For me, being a, being a scout sniper, I, I got to be an individual again. You got to remember in the Marine Corps, there, there's no individuals. 
the Marine Corps always works as a unit, and we worked as a unit, but being a scout sniper team where we could detach from the company once in a while, give us a little bit of our own time, that's something you don't have as a rifleman in a company. So yes, I, I enjoyed that little bit of time, and I felt safer when we were out on a hide or when we were out moving than I did when I was in the perimeter with the company because I knew I wasn't being seen. I knew I was, I was in a position that, that they weren't going to locate me. And so I could be more relaxed when I was out by myself like that. Not by myself, but with my, with my partner. We never, ever went out without our partners. But, yeah, being, they, like I say, there was no individuals in the Marine Corps, but you did feel a little bit better when the two of you could slip out and spend your time together. Snipers in Vietnam learned to travel in two-man teams, a sniper and a spotter. The sniper himself was usually the team leader that carried the 700 Remington rifle. The spotter carried the automatic weapon for his firepower. What we would do is the sniper himself was, was more or less in charge of the team. What we would do is we'd trade off with the partner constantly to let him practice and learn, let him shoot the 700. When we had a good shot, a shot that we knew he could make, and one for building confidence, then we'd finally, when we felt he was ready, the team leader would give the spotter then the, the weapon and let him make his first shot with it. Then you'd have to watch him for a minute and see how he dealt with it and how everything went, talk to him a little bit. and. I, all my spotters were good spotters. I never had any problems with anybody that had remorse or thought they'd done something wrong. Some people, that's kind of how we screened them. Some people didn't like it. They didn't do well. And at that time, that was the decision of the team leader if they should carry on as being a sniper, stay in that, that role or not. I was, a, I was a, a spotter for approximately two months before I got a rifle. Everybody that comes in to be a sniper gets the opportunity to be a spotter. And normally it's about two to three months before you rotate up as a team leader with the 700 rifle. Normally about that time, depending on who's rotating and what's going on. So you change partners about every three months. The first month is a really a strict training time with your new, your new spotter. Most of them are just fresh from the States. They've got everything to learn. It's kind of like starting over. So as you, as you progress, you can go a little farther, you can do a little bit more. You do more things without talking because you start to understand each other, sign language, what's going on. People start learning how you act, how you work, what you do, and you learn from each other how, how each other takes care of, of any situation. The longer you spend with somebody, of course, the more risks you end up taking because you feel a little more comfortable going a little farther out with them. And about the time you get somebody that's outstanding, it's excellent. You can travel all night, you can go all day, you don't have to talk, you know what's going on with each other. About that time happens, then they would rotate back and you'd get a brand new guy with his little white head going, hi, I'm your new, I'm your new spotter. So you start all over again. I did have the opportunity to work with a, a gentleman named Dan Keyes, another late few boy, or uh, Oregon boy. Dan, was more or less born in a, you know, small town, did a lot of work in the country, and I did spend about seven months with Dan. And they kept us together as long as they could keep us together, but at the time that they did separate us, it was probably good because we were starting to take a few risks that we shouldn't be taking. So. Did you ever, did you ever lose one? Did you ever get partner get killed? No. Uh, as far as 
partners. That was my ultimate goal was to get my partner and myself out of Vietnam alive. That was my ultimate goal of anything. All the rest fell in, fell in place. That was the ultimate goal. And I was fortunate I never, I never lost a partner. I had a few of them dinged up a little bit and shrapnel and wounded a little bit, but I never, I never lost a partner. But in Vietnam, Moeni's best friend was his Remington rifle. Our weapon was a Remington Model 700, and it was actually a modified version of a hunting rifle. We had a medium-heavy barrel on it. The armors had glass-bedded uh, the stock on it. The receiver was, gla or of course, glass-bedded. It was free-floated. The triggers were taken down to about three and a half, four pounds of pull. Had the red-filled three to nine scope on it. It was a very effective rifle. We we sighted the rifles in for 500 meters, and then everything was holed off up to about 600, 700 meters, and then we would dial up a thousand meter dope for elevation on it, and then it was all holed again for long range shooting. Your rifle is your life. Your equipment is your life. You're only as good as your equipment. If your rifle's not functioning properly, you're not functioning. So the, the weapon, we took extreme care of it. It was clean. If we went out and we were out all night, we came back in the next morning. Before we ate, before we did anything, the weapon was cleaned, put back, made sure it was taken care of first. The weapons we had were, were good. They were adequate for what, what we did, but we also took as good a care of them as we did our own self. Gear-wise, what we carried was, was just a standard issue of everything from extra clothing, extra socks, extra chow, extra water, we had our poncho liners, our ponchos. We had a machete. I learned, this is something I want to add real quick, but I did learn something being in the infantry for three three months. You don't really have a life of your own when you're in the infantry. So when supplies come in, extra ammo, laws, it doesn't make any difference, C4, claymores, whatever gear that comes in, it's divided between the entire company to pack the gear. So what I did with my, my partner to it was very important that we were accepted with the companies we work with. So me and my partner would go down and we'd load up our share of the gear also that they were carrying. So whatever our load was, our share was to help pack, we, we also packed that. Very, very important. Now, when we left, I had to be tight enough with the company when we left for a day or so. I had to be tight enough with, with people in that company. I could leave my mainframe pack, leave that gear with them leave all our extra stuff that we didn't need for the day, and then we took a little day pack that we packed with us. We'd take like 40 rounds of ammo for the, for the M700. We would take up to five, six clips for the M14. We would take just what we need to have, just enough food to get us by, and we travel as light as we could, a little extra water, just what we needed to go out and, and set up for, for the day. During his tour, Mawini learned the ropes working with infantry. Well, like I say, I started in infantry, so I know exactly what them people went through. Well, knowing that I was going to leave a company that I was going to be working with, and, I, and part of my job was to go out as a scout and leave the company, I wanted to be as tight as I could with that company, because if something happened to us out there, say we were even six, seven hundred thousand meters from the company and something happened to us, and, and we got compromised, and all of a sudden there's automatic weapon fire going on. I didn't want the people in the company to go, huh, snipers just screwed up. You know what I mean? I want them guys on the run. I want a squad coming out there to get my butt out of there. And that happened a couple times, and it was very, very helpful being in tight with them. 
I would I would do things like where a, a, a squad would be out all day on a patrol, and me and my partner might have been working close to the lines, to our perimeter, and we had a pretty easy day set up. We could take turns. We could nap a little bit during the day. Well, when that squad would come in at night, they still have to stand lines. It didn't matter if they humped all day. They still have to do their, their line duty that night on the perimeter. So what we'd do is take our starlight scope. We'd go over because we'd be rested up. We'd trade off and we'd take their positions and let them get a little bit of rest. Well, by doing this, we started making friends with the companies we worked with, and we started making good friends this way. They, they liked us, and we'd do anything we could to support that company. We weren't just going out to be snipers never did just go out to be snipers with a company. We were kind of their eyes and ears, and that was our major job, I, I feel, as, as scout snipers over there, we were their eyes and ears. If I knew, and, and the CEO would tell us, and it was very important that we worked not only with the, with the, the line people, but we worked with the, with the command post and with the company commanders and the lieutenants from the platoons. And when I knew that they were gonna go into a bill, maybe a click away in a day or two, they're, they had uh, uh, movement, enemy movement in this area had been observed by aircraft or something. Well, we'd sometimes slip out at night, we'd sit up on this ville, and we'd sit there and watch it all day long. We would take a map with us, and we'd sit there and we'd draw out what was going on in the ville. We'd draw out just every, every ville that we could see, draw it to detail, and then we'd find trails that the local villagers were not using, they were avoiding. We'd make sure we'd draw these trails out. We'd put them on our maps for the people. We'd show them where, where these trails were. We'd let them know what kind of enemy was in there, if it was NBA regulars, if it was VC. We, we'd watch and see what the people were doing, if they're carrying on their regular life or if they were doing something different that they shouldn't have been doing. We'd make notes of all of these, these things that we, we'd observe out there for that day. Then when we'd come back in, we could get with the platoon commanders that were gonna have to go out and face this ville and show them where these, where these trails were that, that we know are booby-trapped because the local villagers won't use them, they're avoiding them. We could show them that information, and, and by doing this, I felt that we were helping, we were saving people's lives, we were keeping them out of areas that were booby-trapped. Also, if we run into a large NBA force in one of these, one of these areas, we'd let them know, hey, don't go out there with a squad or a platoon. You've got way too much enemy. Our job, at, when we were doing this, our job wasn't to fire on the enemy, our job was to go out and observe. And we did a lot of that, a lot of that work with the, with the companies. So by doing this and giving them that information that helped save their lives, we become very tight, very extremely tight with the, with the guys in the company we worked with. We were assigned to a company, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd Battalion. We were assigned a company, and we would go out for, depending on the area they worked in, where I normally work with Arizona Territory, but we'd go to an area that we could be effective in. Because once they got in the canopy, we weren't very effective. So once we'd join up with the company, the very first thing you did is go in, introduce yourself to the company commander, the company gunny, explain to them what our job was, what we could do for them, anything that they had requests for us to do. we try to get a, a ground, a common ground with the company commander. So we didn't we weren't asked to do missions like walk point and you know all these war stories you you hear so we weren't asked to do things that we didn't feel that we were equipped to do but also to let them know that what we could do for them is their eyes and ears so that's the first thing you do is establish a rapport with the company that you were working with then we would do everything from go on patrols 
uh, squad-sized patrols, platoon-sized patrols. A lot of times on patrols, we'd slip off a little bit. If we were getting into a hot area, we'd slip off a little bit and flank the patrol, a couple hundred yards, flank the patrol. One time, I had a patrol that I was with. I was with two squads. I was in kind of in the center because we were going to split, and I was going to be up to the front of the second uh, squad that we were working with. Well, as we came into the Smallville, we got ambushed. And as we got ambushed, I took off running, and I decided I would get on this little hillside just above it and see if maybe I could get some downfire on, on the enemy. What I didn't realize when I did this, I got on the backside of the enemy all right, but also I was receiving the friendly fire because everybody's shooting at the enemy, and I'm on the receiving end of it, and I, I learned that was a not probably one of the better moves I'd made. But... So that's what we do is we work patrols with them. We'd go out and we'd go night ambushes with them. They'd set up a night ambush. We'd take our starlight scope, mounted on the M14. During the day, the scope stayed in a pack because it was ineffective during the day. At night, we'd mount the, the starlight scope on the M14, and we'd go out anywhere. We'd stand perimeter lines to going out on night ambushes with them. Sometimes we would, we'd go on patrols with squads, platoons, or stay with the company. Sometimes we would go out by ourselves, the two of us, and that's normally when we went by ourselves, and I remember I, I said we traveled at night, and that's normally because we didn't want to be compromised. We traveled at night. So the, the, the communication was critical, so they knew exactly where I was going to be, exactly when I was going out, exactly when I was going to come back, because I don't want to be coming in at night and be mistaken for the enemy coming in. So all of the communication was critical when you went out by yourself as a team. If we were going in an area, which sometimes we'd set up an ambush, we would take a fire team with us with a radio and say, we were moving in several times. We had some bills that, that we knew we were gonna draw fire from when, when we came in from past areas, past times we'd work this. So what we'd do is we'd pick a, a, a hide that we knew Charlie was gonna come out the end of after they had engaged they start calling artillery. Charlie would come out the back end. Sometimes we'd take a fire team with us. We'd set up, hide, and wait. The company would come in. They'd engage. And then as soon as they started calling, calling artillery in, Charlie would come out the back, and then we'd go to work. We'd have the fire team there for protection for us. And plus we had a radio, so we could call, keep calling in artillery, directing it for the backside of the bill. So we, we, we were pretty, pretty open as far as what we did. Most of the time, the company commanders would allow us to work what we were comfortable with. So depending on what the mission was, and, and it changed daily over there, you just adapted to it and did the best you could to help that company out that you were, you were assigned with. You feel bad. I mean, you've lost a, a good, good comrade, but it's also a lesson to you, and it keeps you on your toes. It, 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 I don't want to sound cold or, or mean about it or, or nothing, but people die in war, and it, it's, it's hard to accept, but you have to accept it and go on, because if you mentally can't prepare yourself for people going to die, you're not going to survive. For the sniper, the rules of engagement were clear-cut. For us, like the rules of engagement were, were pretty simple. When, when we were over there, it, it, it was... If they was an enemy that you could identify, say they had NBA uniform on, or they were carrying a weapon, or if they was a farmer carrying a weapon, they were the enemy. So the rules of engagement in Vietnam were, were pretty basic. You knew 
if that person had a weapon, you had the optics. So at that time, you made a decision where you're going to shoot or where you're going to observe. It depended on the area. Each situation is different. It depended on what the operation was. But if we were going out on a hide to observe and we had a small force, normally we'd take a shot. I'd take a shot, and then as soon as we shot once, we, we headed back for the company. You didn't stay in an area because the area we was in had a lot of VC plus NBA regulars in it. The second shot you fired normally would give your position away. They'd start pinpointing where you're at. And it's pretty hard to hide a company, so they pretty much knew you had to go from point A to point B to get back to the company. And if they could, they'd try to get in to ambush you on the way back. So normally when we shot, I ran a lot of Vietnam. When we'd shoot, we would run, and we'd head our way back to the company as, as hard as we could go. If it was a small force, normally that's when we would pick up a squad we'd go back to the area that we just fired from and go down and try to retrieve weapons or whatever we could get, what information. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I've heard stories, I think maybe Pat would talk about getting into his bubble when he was getting ready to take a shot. Can you describe that process for you? Did you, did you have a ritual or something you went through? Did you, to, to prep, to say, okay, I want to do it. Now what am I, then what did you do? To prep for a shot... Like I say, every, every situation was different. Yes, if you were set up in a hide, you had a, a specific area you were watching and you knew you were gonna take a shot in this area, that you had a lot of time for preparation. And to take a shot wasn't, we shot that rifle so much over there, it wasn't one of them things you thought about, it was a natural thing that, that, that occurred. When you seen your target, it came up, and it's just like typing. You don't have to think each, each step of where your finger's gonna go for this typewriter to, to make a word. It was the same with taking a shot. When you seen your target, you identified your target, you knew the range on the target. As soon as the rifle come up, you was already picking the winds, picking your hold. Now, our rifles were sighted in for 500 meters and we could dial into 1,000 meters. Everything else was hold off. So while that rifle was coming up, while you're getting ready to fire, all of the stuff that's going through your mind, you come up, you know your hold, your spotter's watching, you squeeze the trigger. If that enemy didn't go down at that time, normally he could see about where you hit. Uh, long shot with the humidity. Each time he shot was it specific for, for what was happening at that time. If it was offhand, if it was in a sitting position, if it was in a prone position. Very, very few times do you do, you do prone positions. Now, as a spotter, you estimated range constantly with your partner. And what we used, we didn't, we had the range finder and scopes, but we didn't, I never used it, and maybe some of the snipers did, but I personally didn't use it. And I learned to estimate range by size, by the football field method, by, you know, that looks like six football fields to there. And then by practicing it, you practice and practice and practice with your partner, how far is it to here, how far is it to there. So. As we would be moving, I'd ask my partner, how far is it to this ville, or to this hut in this ville? And we were going that way, we were gonna walk by it. Then I'd have him count his steps. 
and we totally all the time practiced on range estimation because it was critical to us for distance for for our shots. Most of our shots were a thousand under, you know, under a thousand meters. Once in a while, we'd shoot at a little little bit farther. But as far as preparation, you automatically know when you're looking at something. By the time the rifle's up, pretty close to that to the range, how far it was, to what your hold off was, and then it was just following the natural steps of squeezing the trigger. What about they talk about? And Tom Farron talks about you see that guy's eyes in your scope because you've got a scope. How did what? How did how did that affect you? What did you think about? It? Especially if you observe somebody for a good while. They, they, Tell me what went through your mind. As far as observing someone through a scope I was going to fire, fire the weapon at, I never paid much attention to their eyes. I go to detail what they had, what they were wearing. That was the main thing I looked at. And as far as people looking at me, yeah, I, I've seen them look towards me, but I never really thought about that. I knew it was the enemy. My job was to put that enemy down. And I didn't think much about that. I thought where I'm going to hold what the wind is, what's going on to make sure that the shot was going to be a success. We shot for center mass. I didn't worry about that. In February of 1969, Maweni faced the moment every sniper dreamed of. I think uh, for me that one of the missions, that one of the times that if anything went right for a sniper it did, was the night on the Thuban River. We were probably three to five hundred meters in from the river bank. It was getting late that evening. I was working with Delta 1-5. It was February 14th, 1969. I remember that day because it was Valentine's Day. That evening, right before dusk, it was during uh, 69 Tet Offensive, right before dusk, an uh, uh, observation aircraft flew over and said there was a large, large number of NVA regulars across the river moving towards our position. So that evening, I, I sat down with the company commander ask them if we could take our starlight scope and go down to the river and just observe that evening. He gave us permission. We left the lines, we went down there, and it was one of the pitch-perfect places to where the river had receded, and you've seen how the river cuts eddies out into the bank. Well, it made us not only concealment, but it gave us some cover. We got down there with the, with the starlight that night, and the, and the river is probably 100, 110 yards wide. It was fairly shallow in that area because the river had widened out. We sit down there that evening with the starlight scope for a couple hours, and we started noticing, started noticing the enemy moving a little bit on the other side of the river. And to my surprise, uh, a scout, NVA scout, walked across the river and came out within probably 20, 30 yards of me, clear across the river, and they were never had to swim. At one time, the water was about up to his neck, but he didn't have to swim. He walked out on the bank on the, on the side next to us, and he was close enough that night I, that I could hear the water dripping off of him. That's how close he was. I had the M14 on him, I had the starlight on him, had 20 round clip in, had the rifle on, on uh, semi-automatic. He walked up onto the bank, looked around, and then we started into the high grass, the elephant grass. Probably there was 10 foot until you got into the elephant grass. I remember my company was, was in this elephant grass back in there five six hundred meters he started towards elephant grass and i started to go ahead and dispatch him because i couldn't let him get between me and the company he stopped at the edge of the elephant grass right before i fired he stood there for a moment walked back down by the bank and then he decided to cross the river again and go back so we let him cross the river and i told my partner you know this might get real interesting 
Well, it did. Later that evening, here they come. There was a, they were probably 10 feet apart. Uh, an entire line of NVA started across the river in the same route he took. They had all their gear on, their packs on, holding their rifles up, and they started across the river. And as soon as the first one started up the bank on our side, I went to work. I got 16 rounds off that night as fast as I could fire the weapon. Every one of them were headshots. They were dead center. We started drawing small arms fire from the other side of the bank because they didn't know what was going on. All they could do was hear shooting. I could see these bodies floating down the river. We started drawing small arms fire, retreated. We went back to our company. They never did cross the river that night. But to this day, I've always wondered what their company commander's report was of what happened to them. We kind of nicknamed that the, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, you know. But if anything could go right for a sniper, I mean, it was one of them that, that you never forget. If anything could go right for a sniper, it all went for us that night. You, so you think 16, you said? 16 that? rounds, yes. Well, you know what? Tell me about the enemy, Sam. Tell me about if you had any respect for him as a, as, you know, for bat, uh, you know as a warrior or as his habits, or what do you have to say about, you know, NBA or... or uh, NBA were hardcore. They come down to fight. They had a lot rougher than we did. They didn't have helicopters bringing them their supplies. They had a, a hard life down there. I had a lot of respect for the NBA. I had a lot of respect for the VC because they, they lived like animals also over there. They had it, they had it worse than, than we did. We had air support. They didn't have air support. So they, they had a rough life over there. I mean, they had a job to do. We had a job to do. And I guess that's the way it works in war. I had a lot of respect for them. I didn't, uh, I didn't hate the enemy. But towards the end, you start getting a bitter taste in your mouth towards the enemy because as, as friends die, as people you work with die, and you realize what it is, you're in a war with another country, and these people are, are your enemy. But as far as hating, I don't think I, I totally hated the enemy. I did have respect for him, but my job was to, you know, demoralize him and do what we could. Moeni believes his complete dedication to the art and craft of the sniper was responsible for his success. As far as being a successful sniper, everybody over there worked a little bit different, had a little bit different ways of doing things. And for me, there were several things that put together to make a, a sniper team successful. The very first one was the training that we had that the Marine Corps gave us. Uh, to me, that was, that was critical of going over being a sniper was being properly trained. The second thing that that when you got into the country, you had to be in an area that was going to be advantageous to snipers. I know snipers that were up north that were in uh, third division that never fired their weapon at a, at, a, at a soldier. So it depended on what area you was in, and I was in probably the best area you could have been in to be a sniper. Then it was the, the company commanders and the people that, that, that we worked with, the leaders that we worked with, how they deployed us, what, what they would do, let us go out and work the way we could be most effective and to work with us in setting up small ambushes and to work with us so we could be effective for them. And, and last but not least, and the very most important thing was the, the thousands of uh, brave young Marines that I worked with that made our job happen because without them people, we couldn't have done anything. T talk about how long you were in Vietnam when you left. Well. I ended up uh, getting, I ended up, I arrived in country in Vietnam, would be 
end of April 1968. I completed a 13-month tour. I spent, like I say, about three months in the infantry, then 10 months as a, as a sniper. Then I returned on another six-month extension. Then I did another six-month extension, and I would have done another six-month extension, but they wouldn't allow me any longer. Why? Why? Because they, they felt we'd been in Vietnam too long. No, I mean, why do you, do you want to keep extending? What, what was it? I personally kept extending for Vietnam because I didn't like all the spit, shine, and polish that they had back in the States. I felt comfortable in Vietnam. The longer I was there, the, the more I felt like I could, I could work my way around that country, the more I got to be part of the country. So, yeah, I extended. I stayed over there. And I didn't quite feel right about going home when I had friends still over there being shot at. It just didn't feel comfortable with me. I, I felt I was being successful. I was, I was being part of the effort by staying there. I extended the first time as a scout sniper. I extended the second time as a scout sniper, and I wasn't allowed to be a scout sniper on the, on the second extension. So I, I, I opted to be a door gunner on a helicopter because I'd been in the field too long and talked to a chaplain that, that was uh, kind of a psychiatrist, I guess, for the Marine Corps. And they felt I had combat fatigue, which I didn't have at all, but they felt I had combat fatigue because I'd been in the field for the amount of time I had been. So, and it varied and it changed. But it, I was there probably as a sniper carrying a weapon as about as long as as anybody I know. When I got back from, from uh, Vietnam, I ended up being a, a rifle instructor up at Camp Pendleton. I worked as a PMI. I had the opportunity to work with the recruits. I had the opportunity to work with uh, some of the Navy candidates going through school down at Coronado. Had a chance to, to play a little bit back stateside, but they started pulling people back about that time from Vietnam. So the Marine Corps didn't have housing for everybody. They didn't have place to put everyone. So they started becoming, let's put it very meticulous on detail, uh, inspections sometimes two times a day, confined a base, played a game with us for a little while. And then it got to the point that they said, we got an early out. Anybody that signed up for four years, now I had volunteered for the Marine Corps, went in for four years. Said anybody like out just a little bit early? will give you that opportunity. So of course, playing the games, most of us elected to, to go ahead and get out a little early. So I only spent four or five months stateside and then we got, we got out. you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Dave Barsky. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying 
is a violation of applicable laws. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.